Today, I'm joined by the author of six international best-selling books. You will know him for The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, and The Laws of Human Nature. Some consider his work to be, and I quote, evil, but he believes he's just being a realist. However, I will leave it up to you to come to your own conclusions. Robert Green, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me, Leah. Thank you for flying all the way out to Los Angeles just for me. I'm deeply honored. No, I'm honored to have you. It's my pleasure. Um, your books are truly fascinating. Um, the work that you do has been very be beneficial for my life, for many people's lives. So um, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I have a lot of questions for you. And okay. I think the first place that I want to start is really understanding why as individuals do we need to play these kind of mind games, manipulation, persuasion, dark psychology? Why can't we just be? Well, if we were perfect animals, if we were descended from angels instead of chimpanzees, yeah, that would be great if we lived in the Garden of Eden, but we don't. We were expelled from the Garden of Eden many, many, many millions of years ago. And we have a dark side. And I'm not saying that you need to be a manipulator in life. I was not somebody who was like that. I was actually quite naive when I entered the work world at the ripe young age of 18. I've had 80 different jobs and I've witnessed every kind of manipulation you can imagine. And my idea is, there are, most people are nice, most people aren't thinking about what they can get out of other people, but there's a small percentage. You can put whatever number you want on it, you can say 5%, something like that, maybe more, of people who are kind of conniving, who are always thinking about their own agenda, who are looking at you right now, what can I get out of Leia? How can I use her for something? Right? And if you're naive and stupid, like I often was, and you make mistakes, your life gets full of drama and you become miserable and depressed and you can fall into holes and you don't even realize why. I can give you an example. Law number one of the 48 Laws of Power is never outshine the master, as you know, right? Yeah. Okay. I violated that law several times. I was working on a television show as a researcher. And I had by far, my, my work got by far the most stories produced. I was the best researcher they ever had. And this, my boss kept getting on me and was constantly needling me. And finally, I got really tired of it and I quit. But then it was very upsetting to me. Why, if I'm producing the best results, why, am, why is she like harassing me? And it, it made me very upset and it kind of turned me off from, from working in television. And I didn't realize till later on that I had outshone the master. I was doing so well, my results were so good, so many people liked me because I can at times have a likable personality, believe it or not, that she was thinking he's better than I am. And it, she doesn't admit, people don't admit that to themselves. They come up with another excuse in their mind like, Robert is a bad person, there's something wrong with him, right? But Seriously, deep below, what motivates their behavior is insecurity and envy. I was fired and I was miserable. If I had read The 48 Laws of Power before I had written it, I would have realized, Robert, you've got to tone down your colors here a little bit. You have to fit in a little better. Don't try so hard. And then things would have worked out more smoothly. So that's what the book is for. The sharks in the world, and there are plenty of sharks out there, they don't need The 48 Laws of Power. It's already in their DNA, they understand it. It's more for the people like me and perhaps like you who enter the world a bit naive and full of illusions.
So that's so interesting. This is something which you personally experienced. We spoke earlier and you're talking about how you studied um, ancient Greek, right? That's what you, you said you, met, you studied. So how did you learn that this is how humans operate? Did, is it literally just personal experience throughout your life? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm not going to go into my family history. I have wonderful parents, so don't get me wrong. Um, but, you know, uh, probably there's something in my nature where maybe it's my own insecurities or whatever, but I don't, I'm a little bit suspicious because I've been hurt by people, right? And I'm, so I'm, I tend, as a, as a writer, I tend to always be observing people. I've been observing people like that since I was four years old, really, basically. And um, you develop kind of a muscle for that, a kind of way of picking up nonverbal cues and seeing through people and seeing what their true motivations are. Um, so I've made a lot of mistakes in life, you know, and my path up until I wrote The 48 Laws of Power was very rocky. I was probably maybe 38 or so when I started The 48 Laws of Power, more like 37. I was pretty much a failure in life up until then, and I had many, many pitfalls. I had done many mistakes in life, and it made me unhappy. And so the books I write and the, and the powers of observation I've developed are to really help people out there to not be constantly making these mistakes. That's the spirit that the book is written in. So would you say the 48 Laws of Power was almost like a reflection on your own life, going back and thinking, where did I make a mistake, understanding the mistake, and then sort of putting that down on paper? Mostly. A lot of the laws do have that. But, you know, law number 16, crush your enemy totally. First of all, I don't really have any enemies that I know of, although I'm sure I do. And I wouldn't ever crush them because I'm really too nice for that. So that kind of law is more how I observe the world. You know, so it's not things that all, all the laws have to do with me, what happened to me. It's things I've observed. So I worked in Hollywood before I wrote the book. I worked for film directors, et cetera, and screenwriters. And I saw a lot of kind of nasty crap going on. People doing things that, quite frankly, struck me as downright immoral, right? How they treated people. And I was very struck by that. And so um, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I didn't want to be like that. I didn't want to have behavior like that. I just wanted to understand it. I want to understand where this came from. And so that, you know, so a lot of it is observing people in power. And, you know, like crush your enemy totally. When I wrote the 48 Laws of Power, at the time, this goes back quite a while, way back, even before you were born maybe, there was a thing called Netscape Navigator, which was the, the major kind of, uh, it was like Safari or, or Windows back then. And Microsoft ended up buying Netscape Navigator and crushing it and, and eliminating it completely. And I was thinking, this is the real dynamic in the business world. It's a merciless, ruthless world, particularly in tech, where the goal is to crush your competitors. But nobody talks about it that way, right? And so my observations, personal observations, my own experience and things that I observed in the news, the kind of stuff that people don't talk about. Because when it comes to power, we're almost embarrassed by it. We're almost embarrassed by that part of ourselves that wants power. We all want to pretend that we're such good, noble, saintly individuals. We don't want to admit that we might occasionally manipulate, that we might be interested in power, that we might be ambitious. 
And quite frankly, that really offends me. I like honesty. Let's look at the human being and who we are in, in, in a real way and be kind of comfortable with the fact that we have this other side to us. The crush your enemy entirely law is really fascinating um, because it's not just in business, but it's in war, actually. Um, I remember I went to Cambodia a few years ago and I learned about the dictator, Paul Potts, and he went after the children so that he, so that the children didn't come back for, didn't come back, didn't grow up and take revenge, basically. What so, did he do? He killed them? Yeah, he killed the babies. There's a tree called the baby tree where he smashed babies against the tree in Cambodia. So I didn't know about that. Yeah, so that is interesting because it's, it's not just in business, but it's in war, you know, crush your enemy entirely so nobody comes back to get you. Um, and I understand that when you were younger, you were fascinated by war. Yeah, I admit it. It's not very politically correct these days. But, um, you know, my father served in the Navy and I grew up was the World War II wasn't that distant a memory, right? And I was fascinated by it. Probably the earliest books I read all had to do with World War II and battles. And I just love the idea of strategy, but also the drama of it. You know, to this day, my wife kind of, we joke about it. I, I go to sleep watching war movies or the war channel because I find it very relaxing. You know, I love the pageantry. I love the drama. I love the fact that it's life and death. Now, I've never been a soldier, so it's very easy to say from the comforts of where I am now. But the fact of your life is at risk, you're fighting for your homeland, you're fighting for some cause, and you have to think in a very deep way. I, you know, right now, I am, the, I am devouring any article I can about the war between Ukraine and Russia. I'm completely obsessed with it. Strategically, it is absolutely one of the most amazing modern phenomena. It's the greatest strategic um, learning uh, thing since World War II. It's absolutely amazing. The Ukrainians are kicking ass. They're doing fantastic things. And I'm so excited because, first of all, I'm Jewish. My family comes from Odessa. So I'm Ukrainian at heart. I was in Ukraine two, two, three years ago to give a talk. I love the people there. It's a wonderful place tech-wise. It's very modern, sophisticated, and, it, and it's a burgeoning democracy. And I'm not in, you know, uh, Putin, I won't say what I feel about Putin, but the fact that this underdog is using all of these, take, is leveraging, it's, it's truly asymmetrical warfare and having to be so creative on the battlefield because they are the underdog. And they're just doing amazing things with a lot of United States help. So I don't know why you're asking me about my interest in warfare, but I, I, I am fascinated. Well, because are there tactics from war that people can apply to business and everyday life? Well, I wrote a whole book on that, 33 Strategies of War, which uh, was my third book. <clears throat> Originally, I was going to write a book on the history of human stupidity, which is a subject that interests me a lot. Um, but the publisher said, Robert, we don't think that's going to be a very marketable topic. So I immediately segued into war and strategy because it is something that has fascinated me for many, many, many years. But the, the, the um, task that I gave myself in that book was, I want to make war relevant to your everyday life, right? So I think of business as pure strategy, as pure competition. It is like warfare, right, in so many ways. And so, but life can, is, involves conflict, you know, conflict with your brother, conflict with your spouse, conflict with your colleagues, et cetera. 
And learning to be strategic in life is extremely important. So I wanted to take Napoleon Bonaparte, who I think is one of the greatest generals that ever lived, and make it applicable to your daily life so that you could apply it right now to your business, that, you know, to, to the business that you're growing. So um, it is applicable to everything. There's a term, nice guys finish last. Um, you called yourself a nice guy earlier, or you said you're too nice sometimes. So I'd like to get your take on what's wrong with being a nice person. Well, I'm not that nice. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I disguise a dark side. I disguise, I'm extremely competitive and I'm very ambitious, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with being nice. It's just that you're gonna get pushed around. If what you wanna do is get things done in life, and to me that's, that's what I want, that's what I live for, writing books, changing people's lives, it could be creating a business, it could be being a great athlete, it could be, you know, whatever it is. You want to get things done. You want to accomplish things. And if you're too nice, you're going to get pushed around in life, right? I do a lot of consulting with people in various fields. A lot of them are in the entertainment industry, right? Artists, actors, etc. And that's the problem that they have, right? They're very nice people. They're so nice at heart. And they've had to learn if they want to succeed in a tough environment like Hollywood, that if you're nice, you're not going to make it anywhere. You're not going to get anywhere. So it's not like you become a nasty, evil person. I don't want that to happen to you, Leia, because you seem very nice. It's just that you understand that there are people out there with bad intentions, and you don't get emotionally entangled in everything they do. You're able to step back and be strategic in life and say, if I say that, That'll get me in more trouble. It'll create more conflict. What if I act in this way to kind of diffuse the situation? So actually being strategic is a way to kind of lessen the amount of drama in your life and give it more peace. It's a way to avoid many conflicts as well. Can anyone constantly um, like embrace these laws constantly? Because like you said, I would consider myself to be a nice person, but I'm aware and skeptical of uh, the world and you know the harsh realities of what's out there. So incorporating these um, different techniques sort of exhausts me because it's not natural for me. So what does someone like me do? Well, what, what exhausts you exactly? Tell me what exhausts you. Let's go into this. Okay, like the, like the mind games and, and the strategy, having to really think deep about you know how do I approach this situation, right? Whether it's like conflict. Okay, so I have a, an issue. You know, somebody's disrespecting me. You know, how, how, do I, how do I set her straight, you know? Or do I just go because I just don't want the conflict? Sort of navigating that relationship in order to maintain my power and show, you know, I, I might be young, but, I, but I'm not stupid and I know what I'm doing. You know, having that situation is, is, is difficult. Like, it's exhausting for me. Well, flip, flip the script here a little bit and change how you look at it. Let's say you're dealing with someone who's disrespecting you yeah. or who you suspect is... It's not up to anything good that maybe they, they, they're using you in some way. Oh, yeah. And you step back, and even though it's exhausting, you think about it. You go, here I could do A, B, C, or D in this situation. A will lead to more conflict. I don't want that. B might work. C, D looks really good. Actually, if I do D, it'll probably surprise this person, he or she. And, you know, they'll be surprised and they'll back off, etc. And then you do it, you apply it, and lo and behold, it works. How exciting. Mm. 
So instead of exhausting, it's exciting. You've avoided a battle, you've avoided a conflict. Perhaps you turned an, an enemy into, a, into an ally or you got rid of them completely. What, what joy you should have. It should fill you with excitement. It should fill you with, I'm learning about life. I'm becoming an adult. I'm not just a baby that reacts to everything that gets emotional and goes, wah, 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 wah. why are people doing I'm, I'm standing up for myself. You know, women, particularly nowadays, need that kind of, it's difficult, it's harder for a woman in the world today than, than for a man. And you need that ability to be able to stand up and be tough, know how to deal with people. It's a great feeling, you feel liberated. Yeah. It's not exhausting. If you do it right, it shouldn't be exhausting. What is exhausting is being stupid and making mistakes and having that conflict go on and on and on and on, week after week. That's the much more exhausting. Mm. You're absolutely right. I'm gonna, I know I am. Of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. Um, so we spoke earlier and I was saying how The Guardian called your work evil. Um, but you obviously believe that you're a realist. So I'm interested in getting your opinion on that distinction between evil and realism. And do you think that we're all just sort of self-serving narcissists? Well, to answer the, the latter question, we are, we are all narcissists. And I make that point in my book, The Laws of Human Nature. Not to like make you feel bad and guilty about yourself, but to point out that we all have tendencies to be self-absorbed. And when I wrote that chapter in The Laws of Human Nature, it made me realize, Robert, you are actually quite a narcissist. You have many of these tendencies that you write about. In fact, you have all of them, right? And it was kind of unpleasant, to be honest with you. It made me confront myself, made me confront some of the more unpleasant aspects of my own character. So yeah, we, all, we do all have that tendency. But, you know, I... People who moralize a lot kind of really annoy me. They really rub me the wrong way. Because I think we all have a dark side. We all can be selfish. We all have motivated occasionally, not always, by, by selfish desires, et cetera, et cetera. We all can do things that are manipulative, right? And the people who tend to scream the loudest, Robert Greene is evil, Robert Greene is immoral, how ugly, what, you know, creating more manipulation, they're the ones who are the most passive-aggressive. They're the ones who are the most insidious when it comes to power. Not always, but often they are. Because they can't admit that they have this side to their personality. We all do. Let's just get down on our hands and knees and say, yes, we are human beings. Yes, we want power. Yes, we can manipulate. Journalists are the most manipulative people on the planet. I know I used to be a journalist, right? And so... You know, I can give you an example. Um, about five years ago, no, more like eight years ago, some Australian newspaper, I can't remember, a really big one, wanted to do kind of a hit piece on me. They didn't tell me that. They sent a journalist over to interview me. And I could sense right away that all of his questions were kind of like that Guardian thing. Mm -hmm. Your book is read in prisons, Robert. What do you think about that? People in prison like it, you know, kind of tainting me as if I'm a criminal, et cetera. And then, you know, and I went on a charm offensive. I was very nice, and I defended myself. I even invited the guy on a bike ride in Griffith Park. You know, I, I was very friendly, et cetera. He wrote the article basically saying, Robert Greene isn't really evil. He's actually nice and smart, et cetera, whatever, I don't know. And they never ran the piece, right? Journalists are so goddamn fucking manipulative. They never tell you what their intentions are. So get off your fucking high horse, Mr. 
Guardian journalist, because I'm sure in your life, you've done all kinds of things from the 48 Laws of Power. It really annoys me, as you can say. Yeah. It's people's hypocrisy, their lack of honesty, the fact that they think that they are holier than you are, that they're always having the moral, the upper moral hand, you know. It's not true. That's what I like about your work because it's just calling a spade a spade. You know, this is what humans are. Um, and I think we actually live in a world now where people prefer to pretend to be a good person than actually be a good person. Virtue signaling and <clears throat> all that. <clears throat> Excuse me. No, you're fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but speaking of that, um, that side of people that we all have, so you... I think you refer to it as the dark shadow. So can you... The shadow side, yeah. So can you explain what the dark shadow is? And is it something that's within everyone? And then also, how do we harness that? How do we bring that into our lives and use it um, in a healthy way? Yes, well, <clears throat> the way I explain it is, is the following. I explain it in The Laws of Human Nature. I have a chapter on it. Is that when you were a child, three, four years old, you were like a complete person. You, with your brother Gideon, you could be the nicest, sweetest person. And then the next moment, an hour later, you're punching him, you're pulling his hair out, you're saying nasty things behind his back to your mother. Children are like that, right? They, they don't really haven't learned, to, they haven't been socialized yet. They have a complete, they have all these different emotions, some good, some not so good, right? And um, this makes them kind of human and healthy in a way. And then what happens is you get older, you said, Leah, Gideon, you have to be a nicer person. You have to behave. You have to be polite. You have to fit in. And the teachers, you go to school and they're starting to say, don't do that. Do this. You want to fit in. You know, don't, don't, out, don't misbehave, et cetera, et cetera. You feel all of these pressures as you get older, going through high school with your peers, et cetera. And all of that dark emotion that you had when you, and girls have it just as much as boys, believe me. All that dark energy you had, those kind of desires, sometimes to maybe even hurt a person because you're angry or you're upset about something and act out on it. They get crushed, they get repressed. They go into the shadow side. So if you have this, take this round ball that is a child, that's complete emotion, half of it gets cut off, excuse me, and becomes a shadow. So you have half a head and the shadow goes back here and you're always behaving like you're the nicest, sweetest person. But I know even you, Leia, right now, you have a shadow. You have these kind of desires, right? You're ambitious, you're powerful, you want power, etc., right? You may not be admitting it to yourself, but it is there. That dark energy doesn't go away. And what, you happen, what happens to people, if you look in the news, suddenly some celebrity, some politician will do something that seems very out of character, right? Mm. It could be some sexual escapade. It could be something they say that seems insensitive. And they'll go, oh, that wasn't me. I apologize. It's not what I intended to mean. You know, that's not who I am. And that's where the shadow expresses itself because it's been repressed and it wants to come out. So you can't get rid of it. You can't, like, find a way to, to destroy it. It's there. It's lurking. And it's going to influence you the more you try and, and crush it down. So the, the solution is to stop, to turn around and be honest with yourself. I'm all about honesty, Right? And to look at yourself deeply and say, I have these desires. I do feel envy sometimes. We all feel envy. You know, I do have aggressive impulses, right? I am, I can be very self-absorbed. I can be quite irrational at times, et cetera, et cetera. Just admit it. Look in the mirror and admit it. And then the next step is, what do I do with that knowledge? 
And when it comes to your dark side, I say, it has all of this energy. Your good saintly side has like 20% of the energy uh, and, and the dark energy is like 80%. It's got more <clears throat> behind it, right? When you're angry or et cetera. There's more energy. There's more of that adrenaline flowing, right? It's powerful stuff. You don't want, you want to use it in some way. So you want to channel it. You want to be aware of it. You want to channel it into your ambition, into your competitive impulses. I, Robert Greene, an incredibly competitive person, I'm going to write the de best damn book out there that I can, right? I'm going to sell as many copies as I can. I'm not hurting anybody by saying that, am I? Yeah. I I'm, you know, I'm actually helping a lot of people by writing a book that's strong in some way. I'm not really trying to tout myself. I'm not that much of a narcissist. I'm just using it as an example, right? Okay, so I'm going to channel it into being competitive and ambitious. Okay, or let's say um, I'm, I'm more of an issue-oriented person. There's injustice in this world, right? You know, the Me Too movement or whatever movement there is, and you're angry and it makes you upset. Instead of whining and complaining and bitching on Facebook about it, organize and do something, right? and channel that energy into, into helping people, into contributing to society, instead of just sitting on your, at your computer and trolling people and saying all kinds of negative, nasty comments. Actually organize and get something done. You, if you're in sports, I talk about an athlete like Kobe Bryant, whom I, is like my idol was one, I just loved Kobe, watching Kobe. He was, had a lot of dark energy. He was extremely competitive. He channeled into being the greatest basketball player on, on the planet for a while, right? That's how you use your dark. And I tell artists, filmmakers, writers, etc., channel that anger that you have and put it into your work. It's extremely powerful. People are attracted to it because we're so repressed, we're so politically correct, we're so like uncomfortable with ourselves that when we see a politician or an artist expressing those emotions, we go, wow, that's exciting. That's great. That's where the power in the dark side lies. Yeah, it's so fascinating because I can relate. I think some of my best work is done from a place of competitiveness. Like what, for instance? Like if I see somebody doing better than me, I'll be like, okay, I need to step up my game now. So you're not as nice as you were pretending to be. I am nice. Competition is healthy because it's, it's good for the other person as well because then I'll do better. I'm joking. Healthy competition. Um, do you think... Um, this can ever go too far, um, you know, whereby people use um, these techniques, this, you know, the, the manipulation that you talk about, and they use it in their personal life now, um, and not just in their business life. Well, you might be referring, like, to, <coughs> excuse me, to the art of seduction, for instance. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, because I get a lot of emails from men and women about my books, and I was for a while getting emails from women who were saying, you know, this man used particular tactic from the art of seduction. It hurt me a lot. But then they were thanking me for the fact that they open, I opened their eyes to what they were about, what they were doing, mm -hmm. so that they won't let this happen again. Because the worst thing that happens in these situations, and if the man used my book to hurt them, I, I feel terrible. And in certain cases where it was clear to me that maybe that happened, I tried to help the woman and give her advice as best as I could. That wasn't my intention in writing the book, because it's a book that is for men and women to seduce, not just, it's not just about the male seducer. The worst thing that can happen when this, if, if you're the victim here, 
is you don't understand. And when it comes to seduction, it's very complicated because your feelings of love and you're very vulnerable and you're not necessarily always thinking straight, right? And when somebody manipulates and then leaves you or does something like that, it's very traumatic and it can take months and you don't understand what happened and you blame yourself. Oftentimes you go, what did I do wrong? Why did I do this? Why did I, you know? And my book is opening your eyes to these tactics, these psychological tactics that men and women can use so you can understand them. It's also, I'm not going to say that it's just for that purpose because it's also a book teaching you how to seduce if that's what you want. But um, yes, there are people who go too far with these things for sure, right? And I don't know if they necessarily are reading my book. Some of them are. And maybe I am contributing to that, and I, feel I would feel bad about that. But most of the emails I get from, and it's anecdotal, mind you, I understand, is this opened my eyes to what really happened, what this person was doing. It made my life easier in the long run, so I'm not so naive. I'm not so stupid. I could read you really long, extremely moving um, emails, that I've, messages that I've gotten, many from women saying how much it helped them now to recognize a toxic male seducer in their life. That's so fascinating. So, you know, when people say your work is evil, it, it's like, well, you know, it also has the adverse effect as well. It opens people's eyes um, as to, you know, what's going on. So I, I was, I'm really fascinated by this particular topic. Can you walk me through the different, the different types of seducers and how uh, men and women overlap? Because I understand, you know, men and women can be the same. So how do they overlap and how do they differ in their seduction techniques? I identify nine types of seducers, and I'm trying to tell you out there in the world that you, one of those types fits you. There might be two types, but generally there's one that dominates, and you might have a second that's kind of a minor, or a third even, right? So I want you to realize, hey, I'm a coquette. Yes, I'm the natural. Yes, I'm a siren if you're a woman, or I'm a rake if I'm a man. And then reading about it, you're able to make this, you're able to um, kind of emphasize it more, be more strategic, use it to better effect, right? Okay, so it's kind of a natural quality that you have because the worst kind of seducers are in, the, in the world are those who've read the art of seduction or the game and they're out there applying it like it's a science, like it's chess or something, and it's awful. And usually, particularly women, can see right through it. This person is too cold or too calculating, right? So bringing out your natural quality and recognizing that you're a siren is the most powerful female seductress of them all. It's a woman that has very powerful kind of sexual energy, but also energy in general. And there's a slight masculine touch to them, right? It's kind of powerful, like a Cleopatra or a Marilyn Monroe, and it has Men are very visual creatures. We judge things by how they look. And they know how to create this appearance that's almost like mythic, very powerful and theatrical. And a true siren, there's not a man on the planet who could resist a true siren. The flip side of that is the rake, the male rake, who is a man who's obsessed with women. He, he can never have enough. He understands their psychology very deeply. He even identifies with them in a way he has a slight feminine touch to him. And he's a, he understands the power of words. Women's weakness, if men is visual, women's weakness is often words. 
He knows how to kind of ensnare them in all these beautiful sounding words and say the right things and write the right messages, etc. right? On and on and on, there are these different types. The coquette is, the, is a devastating uh, seducer who blows hot and cold, etc., etc. And so I'm trying to instruct you to identify with one of them and bring them out. Now, which one did you identify with? Maybe more the natural. Ah, yeah. I mean, you could maybe say, I don't think the siren. I don't think so. I can be masculine in terms of like the power, but I don't think that's natural. I feel like I put that on for a work environment, but I think more natural. Yeah. Which one do you identify with? Well, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I'm older now. But when I was in my 20s, I was a rake. Okay. Yeah. But I'm, I'm what you call a reformed rake. A reformed rake. What does that mean? It means I've been corralled and put into the pen. There's a fence around me. I'm not able to, like, leave, escape the fence. It means you met a lovely woman and now you have a wife and you're happy. And That's the better way of putting it. Put it. <laughs> the art of seduction is a fascinating one. How did you learn all of those different types of uh, seducers? And also, what made you want to go down that route? You know, you've done laws of human nature, there's the power, and now it's, it's more sexual. So what made you go down that path? Well, it was the second book I wrote. So, um, <clears throat> well, I've always been interested in seduction. Um, as a form of, excuse me, <coughs> as a form of power, right? Mm. And um, as I explained in my 20s, it was, it, was, it was like this sort of fascinating game for me, right? And I enjoyed it very much, and it kind of um, got a lot of my, it, it kind of, you know, it was like warfare for me, the strategies involved, you know? I, had to, I wasn't cold about it, but it was exciting. It was an exciting process. And then I lived in Paris uh, when I was 21. I worked in a hotel, right? I was a receptionist in a hotel. And it was a hotel where all of these models stayed. And there was this man who would come to the hotel. He wasn't staying there. This tall, very handsome Brazilian man named Eduardo. I hope he's still alive out there. He was the most brilliant seducer I've ever seen in my life. And I was fascinated by him. And it wasn't so much what he did or said, it was just his energy, the way he carried himself. He was so relaxed, he was so confident about himself, so secure within, that it was like women found it devilish. They just couldn't resist him. And I saw him do all kinds of terrible things and women would forgive him for these deeds. He just never got defensive, he never got reactive. He was always open, engaging, gracious. I go, wow, this man is, what power? Yeah. I wish I could be like that, you know? And so I was fascinated by the process. And nobody writes a book about how to seduce. Mm. It's kind of this myth about, well, a woman just puts on a sexy dress and, you know, does the right things, and et cetera, and a man just, you know, plies it with alcohol or whatever. No, there's psychology involved. There's a way to make a person fall in love with you. And that process of making people fall in love with you applies to sex and a relationship. It applies to your office and getting people to like you. There's no sex involved, but you can be a social seducer. It applies to politics, like John F. Kennedy and television and seducing a whole country. It applies to marketing any product, right? So the process of getting, lowering people's resistance and making them want to buy your product, to vote for you, 
to like you in the office. It's all the same. I wanted to study it and I wanted to reveal that to the world. It's so fascinating. Um, and I'm sure watching Eduardo with all these different women was, was the start of something for you. <laughs> you know, the, the best seducer, probably on a par to Eduardo, was 50 Cent. Yeah. He was, he was pretty incredible because you know, I wrote a book with 50. You know, and I witnessed him on the phone, mostly on the, hearing him on phone conversations with various celebrities. Wow, that guy's got game. Okay. I, wish, I wish I could be on that level as well. He was like second greatest seducer, maybe equal to Eduardo. What, um, what type of seducer would you say he is? He's a rake. He's also the charismatic. His 50 has tremendous charisma. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know, between those two, I'd... I wanted to ask you about your relationship with 50 because I've seen the movie, um, so I sort of I understand um, the hustle that he had to go through. Um, obviously, you, you, like you mentioned, you have the book, The 50th Law. So what did you learn from 50 Cent? Well, the book that we wrote together is about fearlessness and the power that you have when, you don't, when you're not afraid in life. And it's not, it's not just like fearlessness in battle or something. It's kind of a calm energy. The things don't upset you, but you're able to stay within yourself. You're not afraid of failure. You're not afa- afraid of doing something bad. You're not afraid of being different or weird. Mm. You're not afraid of death, etc. And when I met 50, I was struck by his calmness. You know, you think of him as being this thug, this kind of nasty guy who's, you know, with all these beefs pushing people around. He's not. He's like very sweet and nice. He's very calm, right? <clears throat> He's fearless. And I always thought that I'm kind of a fearless person. I'm always been sort of a risk taker in life and I thought I'm not nearly as fearless as 50 and he showed me a level of how to operate in like negotiating situations in meetings how to deal with stress I learned a lot about that kind of energy that he had there and how I can sometimes it's not just what you say or do as I said with a seducer but it's how you carry yourself right I write, a lot, I write a lot about nonverbal behavior in this world. And people of power often have a way of carrying themselves that's very powerful, right? And he, he was like a lion. He had that kind of power and energy to him where he'd be in a meeting. He didn't have to ever say anything and people would be watching him, etc. He's a center of attention. I kind of looked at that very closely and I go, I can learn from this. How did you meet him? He was a big fan of the 50, uh, 48 Laws of Power. He told me um, that, you know, he grew up on the street of Southside Queens dealing crack. You know, let's, you know, that's just what it was. You know, he was a hustler at a very early age. He dealt with all kinds of dangerous situations, people trying to kill him left, right, and center. But nothing prepared him for the music business. It was infinitely more sinister and dark and harsh and power hungry than anything on the streets of Southside Queens. And the 48 Laws of Power helped him immensely navigate that sharky environment of the music industry and the record labels. And so he loved that book a lot and he wanted to meet me. I think he had the ulterior motive, which I didn't know at the time, of getting maybe to write a book or doing something together, which I didn't think of at the time. But he wanted to meet me and so I, sure I'll meet you 50. I flew out to New York and we had this incredible meeting. That's amazing. Um, and I think that's so interesting to hear how the 48 Laws of Power helped him 
um, and how he actually said that, you know, hustling on the streets was easier in some ways than navigating the music industry. Well, when you're dealing with fellow crack dealers or, or, or drug addicts, etc., you kind of know who they are. Right. They're kind of open books. That guy, he is evil. He is dead. You can't trust him, right? That person, they're weak. They're, they're just, you know, they're, they're an addict. You know, okay, it's all kind of out in the open. But an executive, a record executive, man, they say they love you. They say you're wonderful. But, in, but, in the, but as soon as your back is turned, they're bad-mouthing you. They're doing things to try and negotiate you down. You don't know who to trust. You don't know who you are. You're like, whoa, what is this world I've just entered, right? You know? So I think the book really helped him kind of calm down and be strategic in these situations and think before reacting and understand that these were kind of the games that were being played right on him. And what, I think I know the answer now after this, but which industry would you say um, is most important for implementing these specific tools in order to succeed and not be you know, pushed over? Music industry, real estate, property, banking, acting, which is it? It's hard to discriminate. I remember once um, I was in Washington on a book tour, The 48 Laws of Power. And I was in um, one of the uh, departments there. I think it was the Voice of America. And this woman came running up to me and she goes, thank you so much for writing this book. This is exactly what the bureaucratic world of Washington is like. It is so evil. It's so many people you can never trust. Your book helped me. I remember I was in San Diego once and this woman came running up to me. She goes, thank, Robert, thank you so much for this book. She was in the nonprofit world. She said, the nonprofit world, you wouldn't believe, Robert, is so Machiavellian. People are constantly jockeying for power and position. The art world, you know, which I know fairly well, is incredibly competitive, incredibly Machiavellian. There's no place on earth that's not like that, right? Maybe if you're a, a no, elementary school teacher? No, that's probably still like that. Dealing. My mom's a teacher, actually. I hear it's it's a nightmare at school. It's, okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I take it back. I've dealt with athletes who said, you know, professional basketball players, Robert, the NBA team owners, you can never trust them. They're terrible. They're awful. Your book helped me. You know, it helped a lot. So it'd be hard to say. From what I hear, the record industry is the worst. One thing I will say, the more money involved the weirder and more manipulative and sharkier people become. So the record industry and Hollywood are dealing with huge amounts of money, yeah. right? But also business as well, so. What would you say people should look out for um, to know whether to trust somebody or not? Because you don't wanna just go and, maybe you should go into a situation and be highly skeptical of everybody around you. But again, I personally would find that slightly out of character. So are there red flags that you should look for? How do you tell if somebody's got bad intentions? Well, it's a great question, and, and if it were so easy, then we, there would be no problems in life. So sometimes we make mistakes. I, make, I still, to this day, make mistakes. But you want to increase your odds. <clears throat> you want to make it so that 80% of the time you judge people correctly. And okay, yes, occasionally I make mistakes. I'm human as well. But <clears throat> so you start off with a slight touch of skepticism, right? People have to reach a certain barrier, okay? And immediately... You base things on body language, first of all, on comfort. Your instincts are often incredibly powerful. Where, and I often, this happened with, when we were talking about seduction, where women would say, you know, Robert, when I first met him, I was a little bit worried, wary of him. There seemed something didn't seem right. 
and then I fell for him, and then all that went out the window. So often you get a sense of people. I say look at the body language. So for instance, if you're talking to someone, right? Yeah. How do their eyes engage, right? Are they really looking at you, or are they constantly shifting and looking around? Are they facing you? With, how's their posture when they, do they have an excited look? Is their smile natural and real, or is it very fake and put on? What's the tone in their voice? Is it excited or is it not excited? You can read all these things. I have a whole chapter in the laws of human nature about that. So a lot of it is body language and some of it is patterns of behavior, right? So if, if you're dealing with someone and they are, are late for, for an event or whatever, put that in, file that in the back of your mind and go, that says something about them. Maybe they, it was just the traffic. Maybe they, they had a good excuse, okay? But maybe not, mm -hmm. all right? And they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I, I got held up, blah, 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 blah. Then there's late a second time, all right? There's a pattern here. There's something going on, and it can have other reasons. They're trying to, to indicate that they feel superior to you in some way, etc. Look at these little signs. People are constantly revealing signs about who they are, about their intentions, about their level of trustworthiness, right? But you're not picking them up. So, you know, look at how, how they dress, how messy or disorganized they are. I know I can speak because I'm extremely disorganized that way, but that's, that's another story. Um, so look at all of the details. And, you know, in, in a relationship situation, Maybe you can let down your guard at first, et cetera. Not, you're not, I don't want you to be paranoid in life because that's a problem. Yeah. And certainly, it's only a minority of people you need to be wary of. But in your initial stages, have just a touch of wariness and kind of scrutinize people and be aware that appearances can be deceptive. That's the most important thing. Humans are masters at acting. They're masters at wearing a mask at fooling you with a particular appearance of being nice and sweet, etc. Toxic people don't go around saying, I'm toxic, here, look at me. They've learned how to be very charming, right? Yeah. So don't trust appearances. And the other thing I'd say is if people have one quality that's very strong, like this man is hyper-masculine, or this person is extremely confident, etc., etc., they're disguising the opposite, mm. often right? Or the, I, this person is a saint. They're so good. They're so wonderful. They're hiding the fact that there's something else going on. It's just that it's the extremes that I'm talking about. Not if just someone just is normally confident, but so hyper, they have to, you know, exude this, yeah, overcompensating for it. So read those. These are all these signs, etc. We spoke earlier about um, the laws of human nature and the work that went into that. Um, and I saw a, a podcast that you were talking about and you were sort of saying how the stress that you were under was potentially sort of influenced the, the stroke that you had. So I want to talk about the, the stress that went into writing that book. You said you're a very ambitious person and nothing, no, no illness, no, no, nothing would stop you from writing that book. So how, how do you deal with that ambition and balance the, the stress? Well, I could have been better at it. I probably should have relaxed at times and taken more time off, which I'm not good at. But um, I wanted to write a really important book. I wanted to help people and I wanted to write the book that I thought I was 
capable of. And so it was going to take a toll on my body. Every time I finish a book, particularly since the war book, I have a feeling like, God, I'm on death's, death's door. <clears throat> I pushed myself too hard, Robert. Be careful. And the, finally, I did push myself too hard, and I almost died from it. Um, but, you know, it was also a, a set of circumstances, which I don't know how interesting it is. It's just um, I had been walking in the park nearby, <clears throat> excuse me, and I got a, st uh, a, a wasp sting in my neck. And at the time, I didn't pay attention to it. And then about 10 days later, my whole chest got inflamed. It was, it was excruciating. So I went to the doctor and they gave me what's called prednisone, which is a cortisone thing, which raises your blood pressure. The stroke that I had was a blood clot in my neck exactly where the, the wasp sting was. So there was some bad circumstances that kind of contributed to it. But probably I've been pushing myself too, too hard. And you know, it's a, it's a constant um, subject that I have to talk to. My wife was talking to me earlier today about just relax and, and just kind of hug yourself. She didn't use that kind of, the kind of syrupy language, but just kind of sit back and realize what you've achieved and don't push yourself so hard. Just kind of enjoy it more, you know, sort of thing. I'm not good, I'm not good at everything, you know. That's something I'm bad at and I'm working on. And since my stroke, Believe me, I've really had to slow down. It's been very difficult. I've had to be much more patient. But um, I don't regret it because I don't regret anything in life. But um, I wrote the book that I wanted. I paid a price for it, but um, I'm alive. You know, and I'm still exercising. I'm still doing things I love. I'm just limited, but I'm alive. So it's a blessing as well. And you said you feel like the stroke saved your life in some way because it forced you to slow down. Yeah, well, you know, um, oftentimes I kept thinking because I would like travel and, and drive my car and ride my bike and swimming. And I would push myself like, you know, I was doing things that were kind of like risky. And I could have, first of all, I could have easily had the stroke when I was alone. My wife was in the car when I was driving at the time. That saved my life. So I could have easily died by several, I could have been in a terrible car accident. I could have crashed my bicycle. I could have done all sorts of other things, you know, because I, I, I wasn't too careful. So um, in some ways, it was a wake-up call that probably saved me in the end. I remember once, this, this will sound a little woo-woo, but um, about eight years ago, I was supposed to go to Brazil for a book tour. I was so excited. And the night before, our cat disappeared. Mm. The cat that I love more than, well, not more than anything, but I adore Brutus. Um, and we couldn't find him, and it was, like, it was like 36 hours later. We were freaking out, and I was supposed to leave the next day for Brazil. We were, it was the middle of the night, we were searching for him. And my wife thought she heard a faint meow, and he was like trapped underneath a house. And I jumped over their fence of the neighbor's house, and I to rescue him. And I landed on a rock, and I broke my foot, splintered it in all sorts of pieces, right? No Brazil trip. I have the feeling to this day that something bad would have happened on that Brazil trip. Now, who knows? I'm just, maybe I'm just talking to myself. No, I, I'm like that. I also think if I'm pushed in another direction in life, it's to sort of save me and protect me from something worse. 
Um, so yeah, that's- I'm not alone. No, you're not alone. I think a lot of people do. I think that even might be human nature. We rationalize things to make it feel better for us. Yeah, I know it's not real, but yeah. I think, I think it's something that we do. Um, so you're working on a book right now. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, <clears throat> yes. Um, I've kind of alluded to it in, in uh, earlier books. So <clears throat> the last chapter of the 50th Law of the Book I did with 50 Cent is about confronting your mortality and death. <clears throat> and the last chapter in The Laws of Human Nature, paradoxically enough, is about that. And three months later, I nearly died. Um, and they talk about, I talk in those chapters about the sublime, <clears throat> which I compare to, um, it's kind of a doorway. That's what the word means. And you're peeking through a doorway to something else in life, to another realm, to another possibility, to something that you don't normally think about or experience, like death. What lies on the other side of death? What is there through that door? And to touch that doorway is incredibly exciting. It's like you're, it makes you feel alive again. It makes you understand why you're alive. It changes everything. People have had near-death experiences, etc. Okay, but I wanted to apply that idea to everything in life how normally we live in these little bubbles, particularly now with our phones, etc., where our worlds get so small and shrunken, where all we look at is Instagram, our, our Instagram feed, you know, or whatever it is that you look at. And we're so, our worlds are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And at the same time, the science is opening up these insane wonders about the cosmos, about black holes, about the origins of the universe, about the inner lives of animals, about evolution, about our brains, etc. And while the, our world could be expanding, it's shrinking. And we should open our minds up to what I call the sublime, to things that we haven't thought of before, or felt before, or experienced. And so each chapter deals with some aspect that is like that. So the first chapter is about the origin of the cosmos and how you can have like a cosmic consciousness. The second chapter is about evolution. You know, just stop and think sometime how it is so strange that you and I are alive right now, sitting here in Los Angeles in this studio, when 80 million years ago there were dinosaurs roaming the planet and somehow everything turned in a certain particular way where the dinosaurs disappeared and mammals emerged, and from mammals came primates, and then us. And if one thing had gone wrong, we wouldn't be here. Everything around us, every plant, every object should strike you as being kind of a miracle, kind of strange. The world is what it is, you know? And we take it so much for granted. I don't want to sound like overly Pollyannish about it, because it's, it's a philosophy of life that I think can be very profound and very uplifting for people. Right, and it's helped me a lot in writing this book too, because um, as I said, I nearly died as well. So that's the book. That's the book that I'm writing right now. I'm writing a chapter about the brain, and consciousness, and how strange the human brain is, and how we can use it for other purposes than what we use it for, etc. So that's giving you a taste of the book. I'm so fascinated to read it. Um, I think your work is so interesting. Um, I'm somebody who wants to live a very fulfilled life, you know? Well, you are, you're living it right now. I'm doing my best. So I, I go head first into this kind of, um, this kind of work, this kind of content. Um, so how can, how can people follow your work, you know, follow updates about the book? Well, um, 
I have a website that's like incredibly old. <laughs> it's called <clears throat> Power, Seduction, and War. The and is spelled out. <clears throat> Excuse me, Power, Seduction, and War dot com. And there you find links to my Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, the whole slew. And also um, all my YouTube interviews. And then um, there is an email address for writing me, if you will. But please understand that since my stroke, I can't type. My left hand is useless. So um, it's very hard for me to write back. But I read everything people send me. And sometimes I do try and respond. So if you do that, don't be angry at me and hate me if I don't respond. But there is an email address where you can write to me. I think I've covered everything there. Your social media, by the way, is, the, is brilliant. The, the TikTok is brilliant. The Instagram is brilliant. Everything is perfect. Well, we can thank Stanley for that. He's oh, my, yeah. my media manager. and He does a great job. Yeah, he does. So shout out to Stanley there, Stanley Goldberg. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's thank such you. a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. And I'm so excited to read. And you are actually very nice. I take it. I didn't mean to imply otherwise. Oh, I am. Is, is that how I come across out of interest? I come across as nice? Yeah. yeah. That's good. That's good. I'm happy. And not too nice, though. Yes, that's true. Sometimes I can be, but I'm, I'm using the, the laws. I find it slightly exhausting at times because it's not natural for me, but... But remember what I said. Yes. Turn that exhausting into... Excitement. Excitement and joy. Exactly. Robert, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching. Don't forget to hit the like button and hit the subscribe button so you never miss a video. We will see you all next week.